0: Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, simply a photographer who has been shooting over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then... Yes, I I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the Gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week we explore one of these crosses and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of scripture. This week's devotional is inspired by the image entitled, The Cleansing, which is a vertical image of the cross, with the cross inside of the foreground covering about 60%, and there is a dark mix of clouds in the top part of the background, and the bottom part of the background is illuminated with amber light shining through wisps of light rain descending onto a portion of the cross. One reason I chose the title, The Cleansing, is because of the rain in this image, but it's also because of what is available to us through the decision to believe and accept the sacrifice Jesus made in that we can be cleansed by his shed blood, washing away our sin, guilt, shame, grudges, and hurts. Now, many techniques come to mind when I think of cleansing, One common technique is to use water. Water can clean dirt off our skin, it can flush toxins out of our digestive tract, and water can clean off pesticides from our fruits and vegetables. There are 722 references to water in the Bible, far more than words like worship, faith, prayer, and hope. And many of these references speak to the analogies of water utilized in spiritual cleansing. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and thus are separated from a holy God. Isaiah 64.6 tells us, All of us become like him who is unclean, and all our unrighteousness are like a soiled garment. This applies to every one of us. I heard Billy Graham put it like this. What a folly to think that our good deeds may one day outweigh our bad deeds. First, it is not true. Even our good deeds are defective because we don't honor God in the way we do them. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Without Christ's exalting faith, our deeds will signify nothing but rebellion Second, this is simply not the way God saves us. If we are saved from the consequences of bad deeds, it will not be because they weigh less than our good deeds. There is no salvation by balancing records. There is only salvation by canceling records. The records of our bad deeds must be blotted out, not balanced. Isaiah provides hope in Isaiah 1:18 Though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow though they be red like crimson they shall be as wool You see God washes away the stains from our sinful past that the wool is not dyed white but reverts to a natural white God has the ability to wash sin from us so completely we're as clean as if we had never sinned More than just forgiven, Jesus confers his righteousness to us. Not a pardoning, but a perfecting as well. Without this justification, sin accumulates on the windows of our soul. And over time, the sediment of sin clouds our view until it becomes a veil, unable to see through it. St. Bonaventure paints this image of sin. He said we are like a mirror designed to reflect the light of God to the world. But sin is like dirt that gets on that mirror. At first, it is a light layer of dust. But over time, it becomes too thick to reflect any light. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus cleans windows, mirrors, and eyeglasses. It means that no matter where anyone finds themselves in sin, there is underneath it all a mirror to reflect God's love and light to the world. It starts with accepting Christ into your heart and then living out John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This leads us to 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Keep something in mind. I never set out to shoot a cross, either a beautiful or a realistic one. I found the cross in this cross collection a little over a year after losing my wife to cancer. I had, up to that point, put my camera on the shelf, although I had been shooting about 10 years when my wife and I were focused on a side business in a roundabout attempt to be able to fund full-time photography effort. In other words, for us to become successful enough to leave our day job and shoot what I wanted, which back then was nature and inspirational imagery versus products, portraits, and weddings. And we were on our way meaning she had retired from her day job. She was given a nice goodbye party from her bosses and she was actually able to say goodbye to her co-workers. All of which knew, because she spoke about it often, that her next step was to allow me to leave my day job and refocus on photography. That was on May 10th and 13 days later she was gone. God had come for her hand to take her home early. I was there holding her hand when she flatlined, and I tangibly felt his hand take hers for mine. That experience and what I felt afforded me a stoic peace in the midst of an intense storm. After the activities of the funeral and other related transition activities, I resolved to just fulfill my daybook duties I let her business fizzle out, And I took my camera off the shelf every night, and I fell into a routine of chasing and soaking in every sunset that I could. It felt like I was the closest I could get to heaven here on earth. Now, St. Benedict believed that Christians have the ability to tap into eternity. And there were times at certain sunsets where I became lost in some sort of wrinkle in the fabric of time and space. I can't really explain it verbally but I felt and saw as it was personal for me. But if you can sit and meditate on a sunset for half an hour to for an hour, for an hour and a half, sometimes unexplainable things happened. Suffice it to say, it amplified my desire to find another sunset the next night and the night after and the next. In other words, I fell into a chasing sunset phase of my life. And it was in this mode of living, in this mode of exploration for new sites to meditate upon and shoot from, that I discovered a new hill. And this time, up on the top of it, I found a 12-foot high white wooden cross. And then after several visits, I had flashes of the ethereal tinge of eternity while at that cross site, while at the foot of the cross. And then the die was cast. I found that this site became my secret place, my hiding place to spend communicating with God and contemplating with God. And yes, at the same time, a way to fulfill my artistic obsession was shooting that same cross as many different ways as I could. And several times the two merged, resulting in... Some of my most majestic images of the cross, like many aspects of our lives that we, in hindsight, refer to as a God thing, meaning, again, the cross collection was a natural evolution of my life at that time and a place that God drew me to, which means that God wanted me to create the collection over those two and a half years without any concern of how some might interpret the art that God was inspiring me to create. Similarly, when I desired to share the collection, I did so through a 20-piece gallery show of 8 by 10s each with their own name. A very well-connected person who had visited one of my shows asked me what I planned to do with that collection. I said, to make a larger format gallery show, you know, 16 by 20s 20 by 24s And he said, no, son, you have a book here. He inspired me, and the book was published a year or so after, another God thing. And the God thing is good, because then I can't really take credit. It allows me to much easier say, glory to God. When I get praise for my art or for the book, or both of which to me was willed by God to have come into uh, existence. And from another perspective, when someone criticizes my work as over-beautifying a symbol, that was one of the most violent, bloody, and agonizingly way to be killed, or if someone is dismayed because they feel how could somebody consider a cross to be art, Don't you know that that's the most hateful symbol in the world? And yes, I have heard that. I take peace knowing that God used me as a conduit to create something that can, non-verbally but effectively, preach to the good news of the gospel of Christ. All that said, the cross images make a compelling case for reminding people of a particular perspective of the sacrifice Jesus made which includes more than just his time upon the cross i heard it said once that quote the cross is beautiful and precious because it stands for the shame and scandal that christ suffered for our salvation unquote and i agree as i ponder a line from the poem by john r w scott that says The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. The entire justice system in our country, and in many other countries, has a version of a symbol of a blindfolded lady holding a set of scales. But in the kingdom of heaven, we are judged primarily if we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ or not, much like the story of the first Passover night with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the Hebrew family home before the arrival of the angel of death. But this devotional causes us to look, to really ponder what Jesus fully went through to become our Savior. A series of events when viewed comprehensively leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse or more painful more inhumane than 99.9999999% of the human race. As we will come to understand in this devotional, my comment is not hyperbole. Even if you do not believe in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, if you are honest, you will have to agree that a man known as Jesus died a death more horrific than most of the humans. Sure, someone can pull up stories of a terrible death here and there. But if you find references that were at worst than the death of Jesus, it is still a minuscule percent of the tens of billions of humans that ever lived. And we're only talking physical. There was a whole other death that Jesus experienced that we'll touch on in, in a few minutes. But regarding the physical, the first thing that really jumped out to me was not the obviousness of how gruesome, violent, and disfiguring the process of a crucifixion was, but the cultural and societal shame it brought not only to the one being executed, but the widespread stigma to all his family and friends. Those known to be associated with the defendant were socially shunned, almost like dropping down a peg or two in the Hebrew version of a caste system, ruled by the priest class. But that... New knowledge did not impact me as much as when they taught us how the crucified were perceived as being cursed by God. Wow, wait a minute. I'm struck by two seemingly hidden heavenly truths in both directions, from the Garden of Eden to the Rapture. So let's see if I got this. God had to curse and break the right relationship with his beloved son, only to restore the right relationship with mankind? Yes. And this is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, break his right relationship with that first couple and humankind by cursing them. The curse involved toiling and sweating over the fields for food with Adam and childbearing with enmity with the serpent For Eve. Then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. But now, to reverse this status, God the Father had to curse and exile Jesus, who was sinless, innocent, and holy, giving up his son to the worst execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on anyone. Some say that all the physical aspects of the torturous process of a crucifixion was nothing compared to the utter horror, agony, and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future until the rapture, all of the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, villainous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderers, barbaric, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed, was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable. It makes sense now when I consider the people of that region and the time, but just maybe it was not just the cultural and societal belief that the crucified were cursed of God. Maybe it was an actual part of an actual plan. As I just mentioned The Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy and can't cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from his son to allow all the sin of the world to dwell with Jesus. We know this to be the case when it is reported that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So, Even those people who feel God has abandoned them or others have abandoned them or they feel abandoned in general, Jesus can say he knows what it feels like because it actually happened to him and more than any human because Jesus, the Son, was closest to God. He was closest to the Father than any other human had ever lived From the beginning of creation. Remember, God was his father. And the blood type of a person is is determined by the father. The Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. So at the cellular level, God had to remove himself from the body of Jesus. I can't imagine the pain. So in other words, the absolute anguish of being abandoned. And then having the sin of the world placed in and on him, is uncomprehendable by our minds. And it reminds me of the Isaac Watts hymn, At the Cross, which asks, why? Why did his Savior have to die like this? It is a good question, especially as the crucifixion tool, as a type of capital punishment, was reserved for only the worst type of criminal. It was only performed by the Romans in that day. In that first century, in Hebrew culture, it was the worst stigma as well. A stigma not only for the condemned individual, but for the family, friends, business associates, everyone who was a part of that person's life. The only comparable stigma I could think of as being charged with treason in our day and age. But this perspective provides fresh insights as to why the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, would accept nothing less than crucifixion. Pilate, then Herod, and Pilate again, offered many alternatives to crucifixion. I've often wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be willing to negotiate this point with the governing force occupying their land. On a side note, if Israel were not occupied by the Romans during the life of Christ, then Jesus could not have been crucified. And yet, it was a death prophesied by several Old Testament prophets. As Caiaphas told Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment. When Pilate asked, why don't they just deal with Jesus in their own way? There was many ways they could have, but this was much a political as it was a commercial motivation. The followers of Christ were growing, being baptized, and less people were needing that ruling priest class. The arrival of Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus entering, was a final straw for the Pharisees. They not only wanted Jesus gone, they wanted a stigma to be associated with Jesus such that anyone following the teaching theology of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, There is nothing new under the sun. Meaning, in light of current events, we see political assassinations are still pursued by groups of people who want to maintain their hold on power and revenue sources. We see in John 15, 18-20 that Jesus said, The world hates you. Keep in mind, it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, don't run from the tsunami stigma that the world assigns to us, but duck dive right into it. It is all we have, and we should be proud that the thing that society uses to impugn us is the very foundation of our faith. In faith tradition, it represents how divine eternity with Father God and from before the creation of the world, Jesus lowered himself to the lowest of lows Physically, spiritually, and culturally, to become the only legitimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And then he went even lower to the realm of Lucifer, but emerging victorious with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And as we circle back to the physical death of Jesus, they outstretched his wounded arms and drove a huge nail, the size of a railroad track stake, into the section of his wrist, and at the bottom, of his two bones and his feet, and they erected his cross, fully expecting him to take one to two days to actually die. It was a purposeful and diabolical way to kill someone as slowly as possible. It was a very long process of suffocation. At one point, the soldiers were ordered to break the legs of the three being crucified on that hill of Calvary. To speed up the process in this particular case, The soldiers were perplexed because they found that Jesus was already dead. So to be sure, they pierced his side and it was reported that a mix of blood and water flowed out. But why? Why had Jesus died so early? Well, there's a school of thought that Jesus died of a broken heart. What I just alluded to, that all the sins of mankind across all history, from Cain and Abel into the future, caused the abandonment from his father and many of us including me believe that that is what broke his heart that is why many of us believe that the whole plan of salvation was for jesus to live as one of us to experience plight hunger tiredness pain grief of loss and the temptations we face and in the crucifixion we see that it might be impossible for any one person to say that they had anything more painful happen to them what Jesus experienced. Moreover, when Jesus took all the sin of the world, no one can say that Jesus would not or could not know what they went through or are going through. And to those who felt or feel abandoned, as I mentioned, God knows this intimately. He knows how it feels to be completely and utterly abandoned by his Father, who is actually A part of him at the cellular level. My point is it means that there is nothing you have gone through. There is nothing that you will go through that Jesus has not already gone through for you. Now if you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on this paradigm because it removes all possible fear, doubt, and insecurity in your life. And if you're a Christian, Following this perspective will help you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any scenario in your life is the best case outcome for us, God's children, if we are living in calibration with his will. So go and live in that truth today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program, heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay, The Cleansing, along with Verspirations and Crosspirations, then check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. Or if you'd like to hear about the cross products or read further meditative musings, or other podcasts, then log on to RobEHolt.com. That's R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T dot com.